I got ace of spades. He's got ace of spades. <laughs> That's what you call coincidences. Two aces of spades? Yeah, he's got thousands of them. Hello, everybody. Well, it's the end of another year, which means another end of the year show. It's episode 42, for those of you keeping score. I'm Matthew Conium, and as it's the season to be jolly, I'm delighted to welcome two incomparable Grinches in the form of Noah Diamond and Bob Gassell. Hello, boys. Hi there. Happy to be here. Hey, we should mention that uh, because of COVID, we're doing this uh, episode remotely. Yeah, we won't actually be in your homes today, folks. Um, now, I've called this episode The Sanity Clauses. Now, why have I done that? Well, for three reasons. One, two, and three. But also because when we were desperately trying to come up with something to talk about this month, it occurred to us that we all have some somewhat unusual or perhaps counter-consensus takes on certain elements of the Marx legacy uh, that we occasionally touch upon as part of the wider discussion, say, in a, in a deep dive on a particular film, for instance, but which might benefit from being disattached from the surrounding discussion and given a little more room to breathe on their own. These then are our hot takes, not, we stress, wildly iconoclastic, nor even necessarily controversial, but just things that seem to us worth noting as as a counterpoint to more more common understandings and angles. Um, and one that I think we all long listed, so as good a place to start as any, is that to different degrees and for different reasons, we all rather like room service somewhat more than most people seem to. Is that a fair comment? Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I do have to say that I've come around on this film fairly recently. It was actually uh, during the viewing for our deep dive a couple of years ago. Up until then, I agreed with basically every criticism people have of it. And while I still do have some issues with the way it was produced, I think it's a very entertaining film and doesn't insult my intelligence the way some of their later films do um, at times. And actually, the last 10 minutes of it, the finale is very impressive, and I found it more entertaining and intriguing than most of the other finales to Marx Brothers films. So I'm totally on board with this film now. And I should mention that recently we had a debate in the Facebook group where I compared Room Service to the film The Front, which Woody Allen stars in, and how people who aren't in the know might mistake it for a typical one of their films. But when you know the story behind it and how it was made, you can appreciate better what they were trying to do. And I know that's maybe more of an excuse, but all I know is that I'm going to be watching this film again, and next time it's going to be voluntarily. Yeah, I mean, I'm more of a hardline even than that, in that I, I really don't see too much in it to, um, to, to, you know, to enforce that distinction between one of their films and a film they happen to be in. I think it's a, a reasonably good one of their films. Yeah, I, I find, I, I think you have made this point yourself, Matthew. I, the experience of watching Room Service is just not bad. It's not that unpleasant. Um, it's true that the, what makes it different from their best films is mostly the question of approach. Um, it just wasn't created with the same intentions or according to the same formula or set of ideas as the best of their Paramount work or the best of their MGM work. But 
as, you know, an hour and a half sitting and looking at a screen, it's just not unpleasant. Um, and a lot of what it does with them that's different is also just kind of interesting and charming. As we said in our room service deep dive, that's not to say that it's successful. I mean, I, I think it's a deeply flawed movie and ultimately a fairly mediocre one, but it's just not painful. It's not an assault on my sense of who the Marx Brothers are in the way that some of their more typical um, but less good later features are. As deeply flawed mediocre movies go, it's one of the better ones. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and this actually ties into one of my hot takes, so I might as well do it now. Okay. I do not consider Room Service or Love Happy to be Marx Brothers movies, and I'm doing air quotes here. Um, and what I mean by that is when I'm asked to do a ranking of the films, I don't want to include those two. I want to put them over to the side because what they are and what they're trying to be is nothing like what the other films are. And, you know, the, most of the reason they're even considered Marx Brothers films is because that's how the studio decided to market them. It certainly wasn't the uh, filmmaker's intention. So there. Mm. Yes. And as we've said earlier uh, in earlier episodes, too, I think if the original concept for room service had been stuck to where they weren't going to have their usual costumes and maybe not even their usual characters, mm -hmm. um, then I don't think Marx Brothers fans would have such a hard time accepting it as something different with them in it. I could sense Scott Alexander going, no, 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 guys. <laughs> I, I think I still hear him saying that somehow. <laughs> Well, I hope you've all got your, your sizzling hot takes at the ready. Uh, I'm going to say this. None of their movies are great, and it makes no difference who directed them. Brackets, and don't worry, that's a good thing. So let me, let me explain what I mean by yeah. that. And again, this is something that's, that's sort of come out of a, uh, something that was I noticed in the Facebook group, where there was, there's some sort of national film registry or something where people nominate uh, great films to be... I don't know, preserved or celebrated in some way, canonized, and there, and there's uh, some contention because the the Marxists have have missed the uh, the shortlist this year, and I think to some extent you have to say that that's that's right, um, and that there's a there's a kind of an unresolved tension between the concept of a great film and the concept of something that is great that happens to have been filmed. Um, and the Marx Brothers are, are very much in the latter category. Um, obviously, it's possible for something to be both. One could argue that, that Chaplin or Keaton or Jacques Tati's films are both great films and uh, great comedy performances that happen to have been filmed. But if you think for an analogy, if you imagine that you were lucky enough to go and see a particularly magnificent um, piece of stand-up comedy performance like a, a say a legendary Richard Pryor performance or something uh, when you got home that evening you would say wow I've just seen stand-up comedy history but you wouldn't say I've just seen a really good play you know the, the, the best play I've seen since since uh, the cherry orchard um, because obviously that that's not what it is and you sort of would say the same thing about about what the Marx Brothers do it's it's something very funny both in terms of writing and performance, that's just being done in front of a camera, and it's a it's a, it's a bit of a fudge to say uh, that it's that it's it's a great film, it's great filmmaking, and that leads me on to the second point, which is that a lot of people always say things like, "Oh, isn't it a shame that 
Billy Wilder never got to work with them. Isn't it a shame that uh, Ernst Lubitsch never got to work with them? And I, I think the answer to that is is no. Um, it isn't. That would have been interesting in the way that we've just been saying room service is interesting, but it wouldn't have been a better Marx Brothers film because I don't think that the, the director is able to bring anything extra to uh, to those concepts unless it's grafted on which is the you know the point i make about leo mccary which is you know the reason why duck soup is so different is because he's brought a lot of himself into it um i don't think any director is actually going to just make things better and i would even backtrack now on what i used to say and which i think i say in the book which is that uh, norman mcleod is a good director for them I don't think he is, really. Uh, I think it's just a coincidence that he happened to have made two that are especially funny with especially good scripts. Um, I think the only kind of direction that that could make a difference would be genuinely inept direction uh, of a sort that you're you're not going to get even at the baseline in in, in a Hollywood studio. Um, You know, if... I mean, I suppose the closest, if you if you don't know the context, would be coconuts. If you don't know anything about how cumbersome the technology was, if you don't know anything about how new the techniques were and so on, you could look at that and say, well, this is quite badly directed. Um, and even that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a push to say it stops Wyaduck being funny uh, or, that, or that better direction would have made it funnier. I wonder, this is not a theory that had occurred to me before listening to you make those points, Matthew, but I wonder if it could be argued that in the case of the Marx Brothers, a director can hurt but can't help. Um, because it's possible that perhaps Edward Bazell and maybe to a lesser extent Sam Wood might have even damaged the results more than uh, McLeod or McCary or Victor Herman or anybody helped the results. Yes, but again, in the same way, by by imposing something yes. something on on them, I, I don't think any director could could lift or lower what they actually have to offer, other than by by subverting it in some way. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there because I'm I'm here to defend Sam Wood. Uh-huh. Ah, okay. <laughs> I think whatever issues people have with the Night at the Opera or Day at the Races have more to do with Thalberg and the script than anything having to do with Sam Wood's actual work. I think he does the comedy scenes beautifully. The stateroom scene, the moving the beds in the hotel, the opera, even in A Day at the Races, you know, the dinner with Flo, I think is it's a wonderfully directed scene. And he does exceptional work. And I think people have a tendency to take their issues with the whole MGM experience and graft them onto Sam Wood when it's actually none of his doing. I think possibly because because uh, Wood is is by almost everyone's uh, recollection a, a much less pleasant character, isn't, That's it? True. isn't he? So I think I think people people you know want sort of want to, to dump on him, um, but but yes, I mean uh, I, I think your points are are inarguable, really. And if he had been allowed to continue directing at the circus and you know, go west, I think they would have been significantly better films than what they are. Probably so. I th- I think that maybe some of this comes from the uh, opera and races, let's say, uh, despite their good qualities. Uh, one of the things that is less good about them is that they have 
they have a kind of conservatism and there's a sort of austerity to those films that doesn't feel like it matches the spirit of the Marx Brothers. And Sam Wood, we kind of know him to have had those personal qualities too. Um, and so maybe maybe you're right, Bob. Maybe for that reason, we are putting more of the blame on his doorstep than, than really belongs there. I, I think the only offhand, the only uh, criticism I can remember anyone involved with the film's making of him uh, on a on a you know a technical basis is that he that he did too many retakes, often uh, to the point where um, the, the spontaneity was lost. I, I don't know that there's really much evidence of that in the films. It, it seemed the, the scenes play pretty fresh. Yeah. I think I can't think of any comic scene or moment in either of those films where I thought, oh, would miss the mark or that should have been funnier. I, I think he nails everything. Hmm. Well, I have a point on my list that fits into both of these past uh, points. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want either of you guys or any of our listeners to worry about me here, but I'll, I'll discuss my penchant for self-harm and tell you that I watched Go West recently. Um, <laughs> not having seen it in many years, or not having seen it in its entirety in many years. I, I watched it specifically to prepare for this episode because I had it in my head... I just thought maybe I was going to be able to build an argument that it's better than At the Circus, <laughs> and I would change my film rankings accordingly, and I thought that would be a great thing to argue with Bob and Matthew about. Um, after watching it, I found I could not, even as an intellectual exercise, I couldn't get there. It's not better than At the Circus. But I did notice something else about it <laughs> that I thought was interesting. It's shorter than At the Circus? <laughs> that's about all you can say yeah i know i as you know i i'm not a i don't love at the circus and i thought that's gonna be my heresy but no at the circus is a little better but go west i think after this recent viewing i think it deserves to be discussed along with the films you mentioned bob room service and love happy as not really an attempt to do what the marx brothers normally did uh it's different it's experimental um, not only because it's their only period piece, and because more than any of their other films, it has the quality um, that we've talked about before, where you could pretty much plug three other comedians into it, and make a few changes and have the same film. That's all true. But it also doesn't follow any of the established formulas. It's not like at the circus in slavishly trying to recreate situations from opera and races. Um, it really doesn't do that. As many have noticed, it borrows its plot from Laurel and Hardy's Way Out West. And although there's very little in it that you could really call a highlight, um, you know, if At the Circus maybe has 10 good lines in it, Go West might have five, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really different from the others. And I think we can set it aside with, with Room Service and Love Happy. Uh, they were not trying to do a Marx Brothers thing here. They were trying to see if they could do something else. You know how we talked about it on our Horse Feathers episode about how it was a satire on the college films of the era? Can we say the same thing about Go West, about it being a Western satire? Or is it just not that ambitious? I think so. Well, it's not that ambitious, and it's obviously not that good. But yes, now that we, we are used to thinking of, of uh, Monkey Business, Horse Feathers, and Duck Soup as film parodies on some level, uh, that does seem more true of Go West, certainly, than it does of opera races or at the circus. I think it is a, it's a comedy Western, though, isn't it, rather than a Western parody. I mean, it's, it, they're, they're 
plonked into a set of of Western uh, stock situations and cliches and so on. But they they, they don't sort of. There's no satire on westerns, um, right. Right. which might have been a more a more fruitful way forward. I think it's just uh, let's let's stick them in the West. Yeah, I agree with that. Although, and it seems crazy to compare it to a film that is so many leagues better but i don't know isn't it also true that in horse feathers it's more plugging the marx brothers into a college film than really um attacking the conventions of college films yeah yeah i guess um, I, other observations i'll save for our go west deep dive <laughs> okay. is still on our to-do list <laughs> our half to-do list <laughs> I'll slot a quick one in here because again uh, we're still at the uh, at the end of the MGM era and this is um, a, a point that I think can, cannot be made often enough which is that their crap films are not crap because Louis B. Mayer hated them <laughs> I, I, I think that's, that's a silly idea and the more you think about it the sillier it gets the idea that this guy supposedly because uh, he once said to Groucho, how's the film going? And Groucho said, I don't think that's any of your damn business. Uh, then, from then on, nursed this vendetta that took this incredibly subtle form of, of deliberately sabotaging their, their movies. Especially since they're coming out under his name. Exactly, yeah. It, it, it's one that you do, you do hear surprisingly uh, often... Uh, being made um but obviously he wouldn't um obviously even if that happened which i'm sure it didn't uh louis b mayer uh was concerned about one thing and one thing only and that was the prestige of his studio so if he if he did if he thought the marx Brothers were rubbish and he didn't want them there he wouldn't have let them come back after room service uh the idea that he that he would uh, bring them back and deliberately give them crap things to do um I mean, people like, like the wrong writers. You know, ah, yeah, he, he he gave them the wrong writers. How does Louis Bumier sit down and decide? Right, this guy Irving Brecker, you know, he's pretty good, but he's he's going to be wrong for them. So we'll get him in. <laughs> you know, we're going to get we're going to get just the wrong director, not not an incompetent one, but one who's who's just just that little bit wrong, <laughs> and we're going to foist him on him. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, that seems true. I, I guess the little grain of truth that you might be able to find in that claim is that if if Mayer might have had some discomfort with them or some animosity toward them that contributed to a scene in which they weren't getting the kind of attention they were under Thalberg, who spared no expense in getting them exactly the perfect writers and um, putting them on these elaborate road tours. Um, so there was a um, something of a come down in their status at MGM uh, during those films. But again, yeah, which I, th- I, I would attribute to general apathy, uh, including the apathy of the Marxists themselves. Um, and just yeah. the fact that, that while it is extremely difficult to write for them well, it's pretty easy to, to write for them almost well uh you know it's 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 not so hard to write marx brothers ish material that's that's pretty easy it's just just getting it perfect that's the hard bit and i I think just you know not enough effort went in but uh, there was no sabotage like the opening scene in go west brecker is really trying here and i think he's got basically the first draft of a classic Marx Brothers scene, but it needs mm. it needs more, and you know a lot of people love it, but I just find it very middling. Perhaps if there were additional writers in the room, that might have pushed it over the top, but it's missing something. 
Yeah, and the uh, the badge scene in at the circus, you know, is is absolutely Marx Brothers formula, but it's just not quite right. Uh, and so hats off to Mayor if that was deliberately done. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say one here that I was very enthused about when I first thought of, but as I started to piece it together, I realized I had no case. But I'm going to mention <laughs> it here anyhow. Um, I wanted this claim that the later MGMs, uh, maybe at the circus and Go West in particular, are the best films to introduce a young child to the Marx Brothers with. And uh, as I started the piece together, I just couldn't make it work. Uh, I guess if you want to get seven and eight-year-olds into it, I mean, I haven't yet risked my eight-year-old with them. Um, the, I guess the, the choice is, is do you do you wait till they're, 10 or 11 in which case hopefully they're they're ready for the real thing but right. if you wanted yeah. to get them in by eight uh yes you may have a point i think it seems like just about every guest we've had on guide into the Merck's brother is right around 10 years old yeah, you're 11, so. yeah. <laughs> and actually if you take this logic a bit further maybe those later films are the best to show anyone who hasn't seen a Marx Brothers film, because a lot of the issues I have with them, and other people do, is that they are, they don't fit their uh, preconceptions of what Marx Brothers humor should be. And mm. maybe somebody without those uh, preconceptions would enjoy them more. In fact, I'm sure of it. Yeah, and also if they don't like it, you haven't wasted a good one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've, still, you've, still, you've still got the good ones in reserve for, for you know, trying again into three years' time. But... <laughs> And that point might be supported by the large number of people we've had on the podcast and, and in the Facebook group who have who have said that their entry point during childhood was one of those lesser films. And we laugh, you know, oh my God, the big store is what changed your life. But uh, it does happen that way. And, you know, children do have, I wouldn't say lower, but different standards. Mm, there's at least someone in, in the group for every film. Uh, as they're first falling in love with, including Love Happy, uh, Go West, Room Service. You know, it's, uh, I think if you don't know what you're getting and you don't have any particular expectations, not just high expectations, but, but any expectations, uh, there's always going to be something about them that's so different, um, so unique that, that, that will convey itself and, and hopefully, uh, make you want to see more. Yeah. I didn't want to, to, do too much about Thalberg because we sort of talk about the Thalberg innovations quite a lot. Um, and the, the, the point I often make is that we really don't know whether they were responsible for the, the, the brief upsurge in their popularity in 1935 because we don't have an old style film released at the same time to compare it to. We don't have a control. Um, so it might just be that they hadn't seen them for a year and they were ready to see them again. But specific, of all the Tholberg innovations, I think the, the one that, that I, I would most want to single out is, is the road tours. I don't think the road tours did anything useful and they may have had negative effects. And I think what they should have done is what they were planning to do with a day at the races, which is not take it on the road, but just mount it in New York and do it in front of a New York audience a few, a few dozen times. And the idea of, of touring it around and showing it to people here, there and everywhere would probably have a blunting effect if it had any effect at all. It seems like this is partly uh, part of the Thalberg era thinking that monkey business, horse feathers and duck soup were 
in some sense bad, that they were funny, but they were bad movies, and that Coconuts and Animal Crackers were maybe better because the material had been tested in front of audiences. Uh, not only do we not see the films that way anymore, um, it's now pretty evident that there's barely a quality drop-off um, with those three original Paramounts where the material had never been tested, mm. except, I guess, some of the flywheel stuff that's in Duck Soup. So, yeah, that all seems to agree with your theory. I mean, I, I'm not even sure I can follow the, the logic of it, because supposedly the story goes that Groucho said to Tholberg, don't you think Duck Soup was a funny film? And he said, yeah, it's funny, but it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do this. But all that they were, were roadshowing was the comedy. You know, they, 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 they weren't putting the, the, the romantic subplot on tour. They were just just doing the comedy, and and I, you know, I thought Falberg had conceded that the comedy was okay, that 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 bit was fine, and what they needed to work on was this bit. I think it has a lot more to do with with their getting their own confidence back before an audience, isn't it? I think it's yes. it's much more, uh, you know, for, for them rather than for the material. I think. You know, there were one or two points in the middle of their career where they talked about going back to Broadway, do a show, refine a show for a year or two, and then make a movie out of it. Uh, if that had been their career path, I mean, we might have gotten less films, but I think we would have gotten higher quality films. And I think it would have been the best of both worlds. Uh, eventually, they would have made movies with the sophistication of their early Broadway scripts, but with the cinematic pizzazz that they got at the later days at Paramount and at MGM. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay, for this next one, I need you guys to bear with me, because I'm not really sure I believe this one myself, but I think it's at least worthy of discussion. I think it perhaps would have been a good career move for Groucho, and maybe even the team, to drop the grease paint mustache once they got to MGM. At Paramount, it sort of fit. It, it, it's, it's believable there. I'll <laughs> buy it. But once you get to MGM, where characters have feelings, Groucho's, you know, giving a note to Rosa and comforting her. Once you have mm. real-life situations or supposedly uh, real-life situations, you need at least a semi-believable human being taking part. Yeah, if you're going to have him, you know, as a horse doctor who doesn't want to be exposed as a horse doctor and, you know, he's trying to save the sanitarium and, and Judy has... Is she called Judy? Uh, something like that. Judy has put her faith in him to... to you know, it it is very very odd that he's he's got a he's got his moustache painted on. Now, this is what always causes a hot and heavy debate whenever I bring this up. Do you think his comedy would have lost any of its bite? No, if he'd grown, I think if he'd grown a real one, I I suspect he would have got away with it. Yeah, yeah. In those from opera forward, yeah, he probably would have, and it also might have wound up being a good thing for the later films. I mean, then Room Service wouldn't have one of the big problems we talk about. Um, yeah. Maybe the other later films, too. If he had, It might have gotten him a little faster to his later or his middle career persona, and that might have been good for him. Maybe he wouldn't have been so hasty to, for all intents and purposes, break up the act in the early 40s mm. had he already developed a screen look and persona that would work outside of the brothers. And also, not just conceptually, but aesthetically, it, it doesn't look as nice at MGM, does it? Because MGM has got 
much better photography uh, very very yeah. you know mm-hmm. naturalistic glowing uh, so you can see see all the pores in the skin and it, and it really you can really see that it is just kind of slashed on um uh, and you can you can you can see the uh, his what I don't know what it's called that little cleft in the middle of your lip through it um you know and it and it just doesn't you know in at paramount there's a more slightly more cartoony quality to it um and it really does look like some lunatic has just got a pen and gone across their face you know um. if the marx brothers were first coming into movies in 1935 particularly at mgm i could assure you there's no way in hell they would have let him on screen with a grease paint mustache Mm. There's often a comparison with Chaplin's mustache, which is similarly a grease paint job. Um, but I think the big difference there is that Chaplin's mustache is physically possible. I mean, you could grow a mustache that looks like that. And um, partly because of the somewhat cartoony look of um, early film, Chaplin's mustache doesn't really ever have that painted on look. You You can't see the skin and the pores under it. Um, it wouldn't shock you to hear that it wasn't painted on. It's just that we know it was. Whereas Groucho's mustache is scientifically impossible. Um, it's very unlikely anybody. It would have to be somebody whose follicles were very blessed uh, to be able to grow something that expansive and rectangular. So Groucho's mustache, its shape, perhaps even more than its medium, announces its phoniness. Mm. I have to imagine it was brought up at least one time, maybe maybe just internally at MGM. Yeah. It might have been one of those things where if Thalberg was on your side, you had nothing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and Thalberg, I think, might have been choosing his battles a little bit. Maybe he even knew about what had gone on during Coconuts with a, an earlier attempt to get Groucho to change the grease paint mustache. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is generally one of the most mysterious and interesting things about about him isn't it because although there's there's no settled uh explanation as to why he he first did it um every account has it as as done for no particular reason um you know certainly not with with any mind to to uh what he'd be doing for the rest of his life um and yet it is so right for for his character the the idea of this this uh interloper who is um you know sort of saying are you going to dare call me an interloper you know who's 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 going to dare actually call me on this i mm. i'm going to be so in you know i'm i'm going to rub this in so much that i've i even my mustache is drawn on that's the vibe you get from from captain uh, captain spaulding um yeah you get the feeling that paramount was just winking to the audience you know don't take us too mm. seriously whereas mgm was just totally the opposite if you're trying to make Groucho a character with practical real world goals like we want this opera singer to be the star of this opera or we want to save this sanitarium, yeah. it suddenly does seem like, well, you're rather hurting your cause, aren't you? That, <laughs> yeah. that ridiculous thing on your face. <laughs> I, I want Mrs. Claypool to take me seriously as her business manager. Let me just paint on my mustache and go meet with her. <laughs> the whole, the whole um, you know, the, the villain's whole plan to, to expose him as a fraud is, is the very opposite of what they should be doing. They should, they should want him there. <laughs> <laughs> they should want him in situ, uh, you know, and and uh, be obviously the wrong man for the job. That nothing could be better for them than that. <laughs> Do you think his jokes about Sig Ruman's beard would seem <laughs> would have a different quality if he had a a more realistic mustache himself? 
it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I always, I always think um, his his cigar smoking, um, although it's it's very attractive to me, to a lot of people, it's one of the most anachronistic things about him, is that he's he's somebody who you want to you want to put on the on the the countercultural side, you know, uh, uh, on the side of the uh, the iconoclasts, and you know, he, he's he's smoking these fat, disgusting cigars, whereas you might expect him to have a fake cigar. As well as a fake moustache, uh, that would would I think these days that would probably make slightly more sense if he had a yeah. plastic, you know, an obviously fake cigar, but of, but of course he doesn't. So yes, I mean I think a case could certainly be made. I wonder if it was lit when he was on stage. What did you do? No, <laughs> did you did you have a real one going? I had a real cigar, but I never lit it. Um, that's right. partly because of in New York, it's very very hard to get. Uh, permission to have mm. any kind of a flame on stage. Um, candles or smoking materials are almost always fake these days. There are all these alternatives, you know. Um, it's partly tobacco that you can't... So there are herbal cigarettes you can use with permission on stage, um, but not tobacco. I think... Um, the, so when I play Groucho, I, I use a real cigar, um, but I only mime any kind of smoking activity if I do it. I think the real Groucho sometimes, I mean, sometimes you can see in, in film that he is really smoking and sometimes he isn't. But famously, the cigar as a comedy prop has to do with timing, of course, you know, mm, yeah. um, while you're waiting for the audience to catch up with you. Um, you can spend a moment puffing on your cigar. Uh, George Burns has talked about that too. And it's amazing what a common prop it is for comedians of that generation, of everybody from Milton Berle, um, lots of them. So for that reason, I think at least some of the time in the old days, they really were smoking on stage for something to do. Mm. Uh, this vaguely fits into what we've been talking about so far and the rest of mine sort of go astray. So I'll give you this one. Uh, I think Harpo's best performance ever on film is in The Coconuts, and his second best is in Animal Crackers. Now, I won't surprise any of our listeners to hear any of the three of us um, praising Coconuts and Animal Crackers, um, maybe a little more than the amount of praise they normally get relative to the next three. We are fans of the stage-bound New York films. Um, but I think I've always sort of had an attitude by default that... Yes, Groucho and Chico both give their greatest performances ever in Animal Crackers, whereas Harpo, maybe he was a little bit more enhanced. Maybe his character did get a little more of a boost from the cinematic magic that was possible in the next three Hollywood films. Um, but on recent viewings, I think not. I think... Um, in, in The Coconuts and Animal Crackers, Harpo is in some ways a less resourceful character than he is in the next three. I mean, he doesn't have barking dogs coming out of his tattoos, and he, he doesn't take a steaming hot, hot cup of coffee out of his coat pocket. Um, but that just makes him a more resourceful performer. Um, in Coconuts and Animal Crackers, he really is doing all those things, and um, with a couple of exceptions that were introduced for film, like the eating of the telephone in Coconuts. He's mostly doing things that he had done night after night on stage. And I think in Coconuts in particular, he really does walk off with the show. And and um, on recent viewings, I have decided, <laughs> I think he was never better than in Coconuts. 
Yeah, um, and both his films, he has uh, an air of danger about him that he never quite has again. Where you, you know, it, he 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 really does sort of, you know, he, he has a wild look in his eye, where you know he can just suddenly turn and and, and be almost threatening, um, and then and then turn again, and and uh, you know, so so almost like uh, you know somebody who is genuinely not in control of himself is how he often comes across. Um, and obviously that dark wig is gorgeous. You get a sense of what it must have been like to see him move through a play, what it was like. You know, when you see a play, unlike a film, you're looking at pretty much the same view, the same set for either all night long or for the duration of a scene or an act, and then groups of people who become familiar over the course of the evening moving through that environment. You'll see a large group, and now two people have a scene, and now three people. And there's always one person in a play who you latch onto, and you sort of watch that person move through the evening. Um, and in those two films, you really see Harpo doing that, and especially if the films and the team are new to you. Um, you can really see the joy of, ah, it's this guy again. This guy moving through the crowd. This guy, now he's going to take on that character. Um, yeah, he's just about perfect. And obviously his, his late arrival in The Coconuts uh, is, is extremely beneficial. If you imagine the first time you saw that film, which for huge numbers of people would be the first time you saw them ever, you've already got uh, a sense of what this film is going to be, what this act is going to be like, because we've seen Groucho uh, and we've heard Groucho. And, and, and so the assumption would be, I guess, that when these brothers come on, we're going to get more of that kind of stuff, uh, but just delivered by the brothers. The other brothers, but of course, what you get, what actually does come on, is something that is utterly contrasting, equally brilliant, uh, but utterly contrasting, uh, and that must have been a real, a real thrill, I think. He's so subtle in the coconuts. You you would expect he'd be much bigger and broader in the stage pieces and more subtle in the the film pieces, but it's just the opposite. If you watch him in the scene uh, with Kay Francis, the Prince of Wales scene, where he just. Uh, nonchalantly nods and shakes his head in response to everything she says. He's brilliant and he's hardly doing anything. Yeah, I mean, you wonder if maybe the, the fact that he had, did have that, that slight, you know, limited uh, earlier uh, bit, of, bit of screen exposure, if that, if that was beneficial to him in, uh, what's it called, Too Many Kisses? Yeah. May, you know, maybe he kind of found his feet there and, and unlike, uh, you know, unlike the other two, um, kind of went into it knowing, knowing how to do it more. I think one of the reasons Harpo acclimated faster is that there weren't really that many choices to be made, you know, doing his type of material. Uh, Groucho and Chico had to, you know, learn how, how to project to the camera and, you know, deal with the uh, reactions of, of the other characters, whereas Harpo just was left to do his own devices and, you know, blow smoke bubbles. I mean, how many different ways mm -hmm. are there to do that? And although we, we kind of criticize uh, from, from Night of the Opera onwards, you know, the attempts to, to, to make him, uh, to, to bring an element of pathos, and obviously Love Happy is a sustained exercise in that. Even, even I think, in the Hollywood Paramounts, he is, he is softened by his more magical talents that automatically makes, you know, takes, takes a, a cutting edge off him that he's got in in the first two where he's basically just a pickpocket an incredibly resourceful pickpocket um you know endless gags about the different ways he can he can take people's property you know with his mouth and and all you know that was, that seems to be his basically his shtick is is various ways of 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 pickpocketry um so he's got a real edge to him in the, in those two films i think
Okay. Here's my next one. I'm not sure where I first read this, in one of the books way back when. Uh, one of the criticisms of A Day at the Races, uh, actually compared to opera, is that it's not as good a setting. You know, they say, oh, the racetrack is not as good as the opera because the Marxes are, are in their element instead of out of their element, and the opera was a much better, you know, setting for their hijinks. But the fact is, is that very little of A Day at the Races actually takes place at the races. It's mostly at a sanitarium. I mean, the film very well could have been A Day at the Sanitarium, and, and I don't think uh, that criticism would have been ever brought up. You know, when you look at Horse Feathers, football plays about as much part of that film as the racetrack does in A Day at the Races, and nobody ever criticizes Horse Feathers for being a football-themed uh, mm. setting for the Marx Brothers. Mm. So, yeah, that's... Well, how about that? That's a good point, actually. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's related to the oft-made point about at the circus being the circus isn't a good place for them, and we we all know why that's true. But uh, as Matthew often points out, to whatever extent that's true, it's also true that the plot of the movie has them bringing the circus to the austere mansion of Margaret mm. Dumont. And, right. Um, I I still think that the in that case, the criticism is valid because we want the Marx Brothers to, in effect, be the circus. Yes. And they shouldn't need to employ a circus to, to create that effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in Animal Crackers, they are a circus all by themselves, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. But I agree with you, Bob. A Day at the Races mostly is the sanitarium, and that is a, an environment where the Marx Brothers should be able to do some meaningful damage. Mm, if, only, if only they did a bit more, you know, if only Groucho mm -hmm. spent less time cringing and, and more time uh, on the phone to the Florida Medical Board. Well, I, I have a few points here which stray from the Marx Brothers' work itself and they get into the universe surrounding the films and surrounding the Marx Brothers. Um, this one, I think in particular, may be a heresy. I'm not sure if it's as much of a heresy to the two of you as to many of our listeners but here and this is something i have struggled to come to terms with it's been in the back of my head for a long time but i've never admitted it to myself and i've never articulated it until now you don't really like them <laughs> i don't care for the marx brothers <laughs> it's not that big a heresy but this is it i don't love the way al hirschfeld draws the marx brothers I love the way Al Hirschfeld draws almost everyone else. I, I'm a big Hirschfeld fan. I have, you know, books of his work, and it's one of my go-to distractions. I, I love taking a book of Hirschfeld off the shelf and just getting lost in his pictures. Uh, I really am a big fan. However, part of the reason I am such a big fan is his uncanny ability to, in just a few lines, capture likenesses and kinetic likenesses, too. Um, you look at his pictures of people like Fred Astaire and Rudolf Nureyev, and the pictures seem to be dancing just like the stars he's depicting. Um, just a few lines and a couple of dots and squiggles, and you say, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's, that's Laurence Olivier, and anybody would recognize it as such, even though it is so stylized. Um, I just think he had a massive gift. However... His pictures of the Marx Brothers, he seems to have decided how to draw them very early on when he was doing posters for MGM. He never varied the way they look, including the expressions on their faces, or let's say he rarely varied them. Um, and some of it seems almost willfully perverse. Uh, his his <laughs> Chico always has a mop of curly 
like dark Harpo hair. He always gets Chico's hat wrong. Um, Chico's expression in Hirschfeld drawings doesn't seem very true to me either. And he uh, refused to draw Zeppo or didn't even know he existed. Uh, yes, as far as I know, his only Zeppo is in his uncompleted last picture ever that's in Kinski's uh, Art Deco book. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, and I, I think he fails to capture their spirit as, as much as their likeness. I mean, anybody can draw Groucho and you, you know who it is. And his Groucho is a charming sort of cartoon version of Groucho. But that's not normally what Hirschfeld does, charming cartoon versions of stars. His drawings seem to get to deeper truths in most cases. So what is your favorite artist rendition of them? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, hmm. What is my favorite artist's image of the Marx Brothers? You know, I think because, as John Decker said, they are so cartoonish themselves in real life, caricaturing them may be a a lost cause in general. I think some of my favorite drawings of the Marx Brothers are from people I know, people in the council group, or, you know, I think Tristan Yance uh, and Jim Engel. Uh, do very nice work drawing the Marx Brothers. Um, I admire those guys, and, and um, they do, I think, capture some kinetic truth about them. I, I think a lot of the early caricatures, I, I think people forget that Hirschfeld was not as special as he seems in that during the early part of his career, every newspaper had caricaturists who drew theater personalities. It was a very normal staple of newspapers. Hirschfeld just lasted decades after the practice was no longer common. Um, And some of those 20s illustrators did beautiful designs. And their Marx Brothers drawings, I think, are interesting and beautiful. And I really like looking at them. But I'm not sure they do the work that caricature normally does when it impresses me. Yeah, my my favorite is the 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 Animal Crackers poster that is just um, lovely naturalistic paintings of of their faces. I'm, I'm not a big fan of caricature at all. In fact, um, this is something that um, John Tefteller and I surprisingly um, agree on completely, um, which is which is great because normally, you know, about most things, I, I infuriate him and make him rip his hair out. Uh, this this is one that we that we come together on, which is that neither of us are actually a, a big fan of of any of the caricatures. The Hirschfeld ones, uh, the um, is he called Drew Friedman, who does people with wrinkles and warts and yeah, you know, any any of that stuff. Um, I I don't I don't see the point. I don't quite get what the idea is behind exaggerating features of people that they don't really have. That seems to me a, a contradictory way of doing things. Um, so no, I, I, I don't like any any caricatures really, uh, and Hirschfeld's in particular. Uh, I know you're not a big fan of the cover of the uh, Marx Brothers scrapbook, but I, I really love that that image. Yeah, I don't like that. And there's an absolutely hideous uh, Memoirs of a Mangy Lover, I think it is, where it, it looks like a puppet of him. Uh, it's like a, almost like a, if I'm, I'll dig it out and we'll put it on the on the um, on the blog. But it's it's like a grotesque puppet. Well, wait a minute. Illustration. You like the napkin uh, renditions? Right? Uh, the, the napkins are cute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like the napkins. But but by and large, I you know I I, I do like the more naturalistic one. I mean our our um our our official group portrait, which is the, the lovely one that that Bob's Bob's mother did. Uh, I think that's 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 smashing. That's a really nice oh yes. really nice image. Um, caricatures, not a fan. 
That's another strange thing about Hirschfeld and the Marx Brothers, which is unusual for Hirschfeld, is he didn't ever age them. You know, Hirschfeld outlived all the Marx Brothers, had this long and brilliant career, but he always drew them at about 1935. Um, you know, if you look at Hirschfeld's drawings of people like Sinatra, who had long careers, you know, he's got young kid from Hoboken Sinatra right up to living legend, silver haired Sinatra. Um, and right along the line, every one of them captures something that was true about Sinatra during that period. He never did the You Bit Your Life era, Groucho, with a duck or something? No, I don't think so. Maybe somebody can correct me. But I, I as far as I know, there is no Hirschfeld of You Bet Your Life era, Groucho, or you know, old man living legend Groucho. And when Hirschfeld would do, like in the 50s, Hirschfeld would do uh, uh, these scenes with many personalities in them, and it would be like the year in television. Yeah, He would include Groucho, but he would draw Groucho the way he looked in the 30s. Hmm. Okay, well, I want to uh, make an observation which... To be honest, I can't remember if if we if we made much of in the uh, in the monkey business uh, deep dive, and I haven't gone back to to listen to it and, and check. Um, but I doubt we made it quite as as uh, in, in in quite so extreme a form as I'm going to, which is to say that monkey business is their least typical film by far, and unlike any other film that they made, by which I mean. Uh, we were talking last time with uh, with Adam about uh, horse feathers, and we was we made the point that it was the beginning of the uh, the the magical uh, Groucho, where you don't have to have any kind of explanation of the fact that he's a college president or the president of a country. Uh, that's that's kind of the starting point. That it, it, it starts on an absurd level, whereas in uh, coconuts and animal crackers it's slightly more realistic i mean he he is a hotel manager and he is uh this person who whether fraudulently or not has been invited to this to this weekend party uh, and he then kind of reveals his true colors from there um i think when they just started started to make screen originals and went to, to hollywood i think there was an awful lot of indecision about what to do with them I think there was genuine, um, you know, um, confusion as as to, you know, what do we do? We just do it. Do we do another animal crackers? Do we just have them, you know, going to a posh house and and being disruptive? Is that what they're going to do now? Then, in however many more movies they make from here on, are they going to be doing that all the time, or or should we do something else with them? And I and and I think the solution that they reached. Uh, they reached next time on Horse Feathers, uh, and then with variation, it kind of develops from there. But it's, it's very casual. It's a bit like, um, uh, I, I doubt you're Friday the 13th fans, but if you, if you were a Friday the 13th fan, you would know how strange it is that the, the, the iconic hockey mask that Jason wears, he just nonchalantly picks up and puts on halfway through Friday the 13th part three. Um, he just finds it on the ground and that's it then for the yeah. next 500 movies or whatever. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a kind of a, you know, just a casualness to, to the way, uh, from horse feathers onwards, the, 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 the fundamental problem of what these people do and how, and how we let them do it is developed. And in, and in monkey business, I think there is, there is only confusion and the compromise that they reach 
um, is is just that, I think, is a compromise. I, I think it's a fudge. I don't think they ever really uh, settled on it. Uh, this idea of deliberately making them stateless, deliberately making them mysterious, uh, even to the extent of having their, their real names in the, in the credits, not giving Groucho any kind of a position, just having them be kind of a force of nature um, in a very, very broad setting. I think reflects indecision rather than decision. And I think the proof of that, the proof of the pudding, is, is The House That Shadows Built, which is uh, the, the film that they contributed to supposedly while, while Monkey Business was, was being created. Uh, and of course, as we all know, what they do is, is a scene from, essentially a scene from Alsace's Alsace's. I'll say she is. What is it now? It's I'll, I'll, say, <laughs> I'll say she is. I'll say she is. Uh, it's essentially a scene from I'll say she is. Um, and it's also from On the Mezzanine. <laughs> um, presumably because they didn't have anything else uh, that they could use, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to stick in there. Um, if you look at the early plot synopses of Monkey Business, you can tell that, that they're, they're, they're issuing uh, publicity releases before they've even decided on, on the, the, the very basics of what the film is about. And the film is just a succession of, of sequences. And I think, uh, as I, I think I say in my book, I, I think we're extremely lucky uh, in that respect that we have what I would nominate as, as, as the, perhaps their greatest ever scene, which is the, the Maurice Chevalier impersonations. It looks now, when you, when you look at the house that Shadow's built, as if what they're doing there is just bringing in a little bit of that scene, uh, because obviously um, they do impersonations and it was Joe Frisco originally, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, and they they did various other people at, at various other times, and uh, for this film they're doing their fellow Paramount star Maurice Chevalier, and you think, ah, oh, that's because in the film they're making they're doing this this um, this Chevalier scene, but I, I I suspect it was the other way around. I I suspect that because they'd revived that scene for House of the Shadows build, uh, and just decided then to to update the impressions to Chevalier impressions that then was was brought over to monkey business and somebody said hey these these chevalier impressions are really funny let's put that in the actual movie so i think um we're very very fortunate that there was that indecision um but but when you when you look at the the film through that lens i think it it really does stand out as the most unusual of all their films and and as different from what went before and what went after it as as you know the thalberg years or the post thalberg years yeah and as we've discussed many times here before regarding monkey business it was a conscious attempt to purge themselves of you know, many of their formulas and things that had gone before, you know, mm. with Groucho in the position and Margaret Dumont as the Grand Madame. And even though this film came out reasonably well, I think going forward, they decided that, you know, maybe some of that stuff was there for a reason. You know, they, they brought it back, starting with horse feathers and putting Groucho back into a position of influence. Yeah. Because I don't think they ever thought that what they were doing in Monkey Business was a settled way of doing things. I think they, you know, they went into production without really uh, finding the answer to that. And if this had been made at any other point in their careers, Groucho almost certainly would have been separated mm. from his brothers as a passenger yeah. or, or something else, like in Night at the Opera. Yeah, he would have been. It would have been on the on the boat. Yeah, but not not in the barrels. Yeah. Or he would have been the new captain yeah. that they bring in. To- <laughs> yeah. 
I think uh, I agree with your point, Matthew, but I think that although Monkey Business is indeed an anomaly among their films for all the reasons you're saying, um, it's less of an anomaly among their pre-Coconuts and Animal Crackers stage work. Um, uh-huh. And it's uh, one of the things I found when we were working on Alsatia's uh, with the cast was that Monkey Business was a very useful film to show the cast. Um, it was just as useful as Animal Crackers and maybe even a little more useful in, in conveying the sort of the spirit of this team because it's it's a little bit of an exaggeration but not too much of an exaggeration to say that Kaufman really pioneers this business of breaking the Marx Brothers down into their smaller teams within the team with the long Groucho Chico scene and um, uh, Chico and Harpo being a unit. I mean, Chico and Harpo were a unit in Home Again and Mr. Green's Reception, too. So this only goes so far. But the four-man act was the, the real impact of the team on stage through uh, up to and including I'll Say She Is. And, and that was part of what we really needed to convey in I'll Say She Is, is that it's this four-man tornado that comes on all at once. It's almost like another cast of another show that is intruding on the show you thought you were watching up until now. Mm. Um, so Monkey Business might not have felt as unfamiliar to them as an approach as it does to us now when we compare it to their other films. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I hadn't thought of that. Okay. Well, let's continue with monkey business, because I'm going to bring my final one up here, and which might get me tossed off the podcast, but I'm going to go <laughs> ahead and say this. Okay. Monkey business is a, is a classic. It's an admitted classic. But to me, in my opinion, it's the least of their Paramount films. I think it has a lot of great moments. It has a lot of great exchanges, a lot of great bursts, like 30, 40 seconds at a time. But I don't think it has a lot of great scenes. So, you know, people love the group Horse Feathers and Duck Soup and Monkey Business together. But for me, Monkey Business is definitely the, the least of these. Um, I don't know. I, some A lot of the stuff is, is fine, but it's to me, it's not remarkable. The Groucho Chico scene, I think, is not one of their best. It's it's good. It's not great. I think, the as we talked about, the Punch and Judy scene isn't spectacular. We know about the fight at the end. So don't interpret this as I don't like the film. I'm just saying it's I don't rate it as high as the others from that era. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree about the, the Groucho Chico scene. I certainly agree about the Punch and Judy scene. You know, and I wonder if it, it's because this this is the one that was my first one, you know, and what, what we were saying earlier and what we often say about, about your first one um, always being... Uh, having that special status and you know so maybe it's a it's a little bit of that working on me more than i realize um i, I don't I, even I, think the groucho and thelma stuff is that great uh at least until uh, elky comes in yeah yeah i mean i do think those those the the three um the three hollywood paramounts you know you can you can only really i think get a get a cigarette paper in between them in terms of of how good they are but but you know if if i if there was one that i think is just slightly uh lower it would be it would be duck soup and um monkey business and horse feathers i genuinely find it difficult to uh to 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 decide between them i think i've got them joint even in my in my rankings um when you when you actually say well okay what list all the great stuff in it um Perhaps, perhaps you've got more more of a point than I realize. I mean, I don't disagree with any of the individual points you're making, Bob. Uh, nor do I really disagree with any of the individual points you make about duck soup, Matthew. Um, and I think at this point, 
it wouldn't be that hard to convince me, at least of the righteousness of the argument, that any of the three uh, original Hollywood Paramounts is either the best or the worst of the three. Um, and as Matthew points out, they are all spectacularly good and we love all of them. Um, but I will say Monkey Business, um, when I watch it, I really do get a lot of joy out of it. Um, maybe, I, I don't know, it's hard to say, but possibly even a little more than Horse Feathers, which I do think is better. I just saw Monkey Business, too, because after making Amanda sit through Go West, <laughs> we, I said, I'm sorry about this, but I, I've got to watch this for the podcast. Um, and she hadn't seen Go West before, um, because why would I do that to her? <laughs> But uh, after Go West, she instantly had a desire to see Monkey Business. She said, can we watch Monkey Business now? I thought, <laughs> wait, 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 hold on. How would this come to be? I think because in order to feel good about the Marx Brothers <laughs> and therefore about me again, <laughs> she wanted to see one of the good ones, you know. Um, and Monkey Business does have, um, I don't know, there's so much in it that feels to me definitive of them. Um, it is missing songs, which is important to me. It's missing Margaret Dumont, which is important to me. It's true that it's a it's an anomaly, but I always get excited watching Monkey Business. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with their first scene. If you imagine being Alexander Wolcott or one of his crowd or any of the people who fell in love with the Marx Brothers as Broadway stars, well, then you got movies of their shows, which what a delight to be able to yeah. see Animal Crackers on screen. Then they went to Hollywood to do something else. And what was it going to be? How are we going to meet them again? And the way we meet them is this slow zoom into these four barrels that say Kippert Herring on them, and they pop out of there. I just think that must have been so magical mm. for the first time for the people who already loved them. I mean, um, I agree, and I totally understand how iconic that image is. It's in every montage or documentary about the Marx Brothers. It's like the Marx Brothers uh, shot. But to be honest, I'm not really fond of, you know, the back and forth that comes afterwards. I think it's just very middling material. It doesn't mm -hmm. have the, the snap or the bite of many of their other opening scenes. There are there are a lot of of uh, yeah of of very very traditional jokes in it, aren't there? Actually, that's that's a fair point, you know. But um, fairly simple puns and uh, you know plays on words and and you know things that are that are not of their highest standard. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, that's undeniably true. In fact, I, there may be an equal number of good... The ratio of good jokes to bad jokes may be about the same in the first scene of Monkey Business as in the first scene of Go West. Mm -hmm. So this recent Go West viewing, did you say was the, the first time Amanda had seen it ever? Ever, yes. Presu I'm presuming then no no surprises in terms of her reaction to it. It was it went exact, more or less as you would expect. Yeah. Um, she did laugh here and there at lines that I haven't thought of as funny in a long time, but she was hearing them for the first time. Um, like what? <laughs> so I'm trying to think of a specific example. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the, a lot of times it's at incidental things. Um, and she is a big appreciator of incidental things like Groucho's pronunciation of the word greasy, mm. for example. Um, um, and some of the jokes, I mean, I actually thought from this last viewing, okay, there are more solid jokes in Go West than I remember there being. I felt the same way about At the Circus when we watched it for our, our deep dive, you know, oh, okay. 
there's not two good jokes in the movie. There's something like right. 10 or 15, you know. And she laughed at some of that stuff. I also did think, I didn't want to get into this until we talk about Go West at a future date, but the the train sequence at the end, which I've gone from going along with the common wisdom that it's great um, to feeling more like, well, maybe it is great, but not in a way that has anything to do with the Marx Brothers. And and maybe it's actually not that great anyway. Uh, but I, on this last viewing, I did appreciate a lot of things about that sequence. More than anything, it's confidence. It's a very confidently delivered, elaborate comedy mm. sequence that everyone obviously had to work very hard on. And even though the Marx Brothers don't do very much of their signature best kind of stuff in it, they very gamely commit to it, and they seem to be enjoying themselves through it. And um, uh, and there were moments in that, too, that I think Amanda reacted to, you know, mm. uh, with laughter. Mm. Uh, well, we're, we're coming into the home stretch, and we haven't really come up with much that any of us have, have disagreed with. Have, I, have either of you got anything up your sleeve yet, uh, still, uh, rather, that, uh, that <laughs> will actually put the cat among the pigeons? This, I suspect, I, we might actually have a difference of opinion here. So uh, let me give this one to you, and, and you, can, you can decide to include it or not, because it is somewhat far afield. Very often we talk about other comedians who we think might share some of the Marx Brothers magic, um, either contemporary comedians who are influenced by them or comedians of their era who had a little bit of, you know, we talk about Wheeler and Woolsey sometimes as having a little dash of it. And I thought this might be a good opportunity for me to talk about Danny Kay. Regular listeners to the podcast probably won't be surprised to hear that I'm a fan of his, because uh, I mention him more often than somebody who wasn't a fan would. And Danny Kate does not have a particularly high reputation at this moment as a classic comedian, to the extent that he's even remembered as a classic comedian. Uh, but there are some very interesting connections. Chronologically, he's he's behind the Marx Brothers. I mean, he was 20 years younger than the, the major Marx Brothers. His real stardom comes in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. He did have a little bit of vaudeville and, and burlesque in his origins, but he's more a product of the Borscht Belt. Like the Marx Brothers, he never made a film that really is as great as he was. Unlike the Marx Brothers, um, he never made a film with one exception, I think, that that even comes close. And so part of the problem with making a case for Kay as as one of the great comedians is there's not much you can sit someone down in front of and say here in two hours is why he was so great. Uh, the Court Jester, I think, is the one really great comedy among his films, and it is a truly great comedy. I'm amazed it hasn't been uh, plundered yet uh, for a stage adaptation because it's a great farce with great songs in it and uh, an excellent showcase for his talents. His other films, some of them are better than others. Most of them, for one reason or another, are hard to sit through or have too many dips in them. And then Kay himself, despite his uh, prodigious talent, he had some liabilities as a performer that I think hurt his reputation more than anything, a tendency to be much too cute. He seems to be peddling his personal cuteness uh, way too much. And I think the worse the material was, the more he tried to compensate for it by piling on a lot of just way too cute antics and baby talk and sort of mincing around. And um, his personal reputation was very bad because of bad behavior 
particularly in his later career and uh, among among Broadway musical people he still kind of his name is mud because of the way he behaved on the original production of two by two um, so there are all these reasons why a lot of people get a bad taste in their mouth around Danny Kay however um, I think he was a tremendously gifted comedian and he was gifted on all fronts and some of the qualities he shares with the Marx brothers are um, he he was like them. He was not just musical um, in the way that almost all great comedians are musical to some extent, but he really could have been a musician in, in the same way that I think any of the three major Marx brothers could have just had careers as musicians and in fact started off that way. Uh, Kay was like that. He was musically as gifted as, as, as a great musician. Um, he also, in a way, I think he was like all four of the Marx Brothers. At his best, he could be like a one-man Marx Brothers. And I think in The Court Jester, you really see that he's, he's incredibly facile with dialect humor. Like Sid Caesar, he could do any foreign language in, in gibberish or double talk, uh, seemingly endlessly. Uh, he was great at wisecrack verbal humor too, and and seems to be channeling Groucho at times when he's given quick repartee. Uh, he might remind me more of Harpo than any of them. Partly, it's the personal cuteness. He had an impish, mischievous quality. Uh, a lot of his familiar faces uh, remind me of Harpo's. And like Zeppo, he also had you know he could be a leading man. Danny Kay didn't need to be the comic relief in somebody else's love story. He usually could play the love interest in his own films. And there's also a lot of common uh, paternity and, and maternity on his films. If you read the credits of Kay's best films, it's Arthur Sheikman, Robert Pirosh, Norman Krasna, um, Phil Rapp, Norman MacLeod. He worked with uh, Margaret Dumont in Up in Arms. Oh, and, and Sig Ruman pops up in, in one of his films. Yeah, I get the impression that uh, Danny and Harpo were quite close. I've seen a number of photos of them together at social events and doing charity functions yes, over the years. That's right. Yeah, he was he was friendly with Harpo and Susan and George and Gracie and Jack Benny and that crowd. And, and he worked with Groucho a bit, too. He shows up in some radio things with Groucho. Um, I got to come clean here. I, I always used to confuse him with Donald O'Connor. Yeah, me too. He's Very saying, similar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my my problem is is ignorance rather than than dislike. I mean, I I watched uh, White Christmas again a, a couple of days ago, but obviously that's I'm, I'm presuming is not even uh, approaching a, a good uh, sampling of of what he does. I've got a copy of Walter Mitty. That's, which it, that's his room. Yeah, I've got a copy of Walter Mitty, but I've never watched it. Is that is that a good one? Yeah, well, a lot. It's a lot of people love it. I, Walter Mitty, I think, is an example of there are passages in it where you definitely can see what was so great about Kay. Uh, it also, like a lot of his early films, it preserves some of the specialty material that his wife Sylvia Fine wrote for him, which were these brilliant fast patter character monologues in song. Um, she wrote. 10 or 12 of those for him. And they are brilliant. The early films tend to find any excuse to do them. Um, that doesn't usually have much to do with the film. Um, it, sometimes it's quite ridiculous. In, in The Kid from Brooklyn, um, which is a remake of Eddie Cantor's uh, Milky Way, I think, you know, Kay is supposed to be playing this um, kind of Woody Allen-like nebbish character, but 
because it's time to insert a Sylvia Fine specialty number, he suddenly becomes a mad Russian ballet personality in, in the middle of the film for mm. no reason. George Formby films have this uh, have this issue because ah. uh, you know he, he's he's normally playing uh, an extremely uh, gauche, incompetent uh, you know. Um, a uh, character who has, is hopeless around women and, uh, you know, always having terrible luck and, and so forth. And then suddenly uh, out comes the ukulele and, and uh, he's, uh, he's a star. And, and, then, and there's various ways to uh, are attempted to kind of account for it. But, but basically none, none, are, none are satisfactory ones are arrived at. You know, it just the film stops. He does a song. The film carries on. Um, so where, if not the films, then where where today would it, would would uh, would somebody go to get a, a a taste of the you know the really authentic Danny Kaye? Well, that that's the problem, you know. That what has survived is on film. Uh, he his radio work and his record albums tend to have all these same problems. A lot of it is delightful, and I I wouldn't. I wouldn't um, tell anyone not to dip into that stuff, but I, I think he was considerably greater than uh, than this stuff conveys. I, I think the thing to do is watch the films and just with the understanding that, you know, you're getting about, you know, you're, like half of it might be, half of what he does might might signal some of the brilliance I'm talking about. I mean, Walter Mitty, I think you would get a sense of his personal charm um, his great facility with various kinds of humor and music, and a lot of them. I'm not. I'm not knocking all the films. Wonder Man is another one that has its moments. Uh, Knock on Wood. In Knock on Wood, there's a really dazzling sequence that I think is a very Chaplin-esque idea that he does just as well as Chaplin would, where uh, Kay is hiding under a desk, and there are two men sitting across from each other at the desk having a secret meeting. Uh, and he's trying not to be noticed. The two men who are sitting at the desk start tapping on on their knees nervously. But unbeknownst to them, they're actually tapping on Kay's knees. So now he has to tap on their knees in order to make them think that their own knees are being <laughs> tapped on. And he keeps this up for a long time. It's precision work. It's brilliant. It's hilarious. And like Chaplin, it takes a real ballet dancer to pull it off. And also like Chaplin... The description doesn't convey it. It's hard to even imagine someone coming up with the idea because it's so physical and so specific. I, I grew up uh, watching Danny. You guys are probably too young to remember this. Uh, he used to host the yearly showing of The Wizard of Oz on, I think, CBS every year. Um, and actually, later in life, I had a sort of a connection with him in that he came to my what was my hometown of Skokie, Illinois, to film the... Uh, you know, that made-for-TV film, Skokie. Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting late-career dramatic role for him. Uh, he plays a Holocaust survivor, um, where and uh, Nazis are going to march in the, the town in Illinois where he lives. And I'm afraid I was also very, you know, very familiar with the the horror stories about his behaviour, which which uh, which you mentioned, um, a bit like uh, over here, uh, Tommy Steele is a is a similar case. Um, so that I think has sort of slightly conditioned my, uh, the, you know, my desire to uh, to, uh, to to find out more. Um, which of course it shouldn't, because most stars are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I would say anybody who who doesn't know Danny Kaye's work or doesn't see him as being similar to the Marx Brothers in any way, uh, the court jester is the best place to to find out. That really is a rare case of the film being worthy of him and the material being really first rate. 
Uh, it's really a great comedy, and um, I think it's uh, found a little more acceptance in recent years after being kind of forgotten for a long time. It has Glynis Johns in it, doesn't it? Who, yes. Uh, who I like a lot, so that's, uh, yeah. Oh, she's and Basil Rathbone? Basil Rathbone, indeed, yeah, and Angela yeah. Lansbury, too. Uh, yeah, it's a great cast of, you know, farceurs and, uh, yes, Glynis Johns. I mean, the court jester, along with the Marx Brothers films, was uh, an early love for me. And, uh, yes, I, I lost some innocence to the image of Glynis Johns uh, <laughs> uh, spending a night in the woodman's hut, as she puts it, with, uh, with Kay in that film. Oh, and she and Lansbury are still alive. That's mm. right, Yes. Yeah, good, good, good British genius. <laughs> well, now that you've got to talk about Danny Kaye for a while, mind if I uh, bring up uh, Sammy Petrillo? Yeah, I'd love to hear about Sammy Petrillo. I'll say that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that brings us to the end of another one, and it brings us to the end of another year. We will be back, but when we are, it will be 2022. So hope to uh, hopefully we'll, uh, have your company again. Then, in the meantime, obviously buy our books as Christmas presents. Uh, have a Merry Christmas if you celebrate such things. Have a Happy Easter if you don't. And it's time for our final song. And let's go Let's go for broke and a copyright strike because I want it to be uh, Everything's Gonna Be Cool This Christmas by Eels. <laughs> Last year when you were on your own Swole spirit couldn't be found December rolled around and you were counting on it to roll out and Everything's gonna be cool this Christmas Everything's gonna be cool this Christmas Everything's gonna be cool this Christmas Everything's gonna be cool this
Brothers Council podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time. Okay, are we done? Yeah, I think so. I'll I'll save the Timberg thing for another time. (laughs) It's it's enough of me defending forgotten Jews of show business. (laughs) Yes, I'll save that for the next edition of Forgotten Jews of Show Business.